In this report, we have Ken Davis, International Programs Officer at Union Aid Abroad, who has been working in Palestine on an agricultural project. We also have Ramsey Baroud from the Palestine Chronicle, one of the largest media outlets from Palestine, providing background and analysis of the current situation in Palestine in March of 2023. Firstly, we begin with an interview that Ken Davis did with the ABC. Ken Davis is speaking from Amman in Jordan, having just crossed the border from Palestine. Tell me, you've been there, you're you're there to support the Palestinians as part of your work with Union Aid Abroad and the Australian People for Health, Education and Development Abroad. What's the mood like there at the moment amongst the Palestinian people? The mood is terrible. I think people are very frustrated. People just try to manage their lives, but... Uh, with increased uh, settlements, increased military attacks, increased closures, increased house demolitions. You know, there's a real squeeze, not only on the Palestinian communities, but on the economy. And the economy is completely, you know, it's an enclave economy within Israel. So Palestinians have got no control over any economic determinants or any borders. Uh, People don't have much faith in any of the political leadership. Uh, because the tax revenues from, you know, Israel taxes Palestinians, you know, like sales tax, and then transfers the revenue to the Palestinian Authority. But that's uh, interrupted, so public sector workers are not getting wages. Teachers are on strike already three weeks. Wow. Lawyers, doctors, all sorts of parts of the public sector are on strike. Also, the situation in Israel is extremely volatile. You know, just recently, half a million people demonstrated against the government. The government won a majority of seats, but not a majority of votes. So um, the situation inside Israel is extremely uncertain. When you talk about things like house demolitions, what is the what are the reasons or what is the, 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 the policy around house demolitions where you are? Israel believes it's got uh, total control over East Jerusalem and Area C, which is the majority of the West Bank and the Jordan Valley, you know, according to the Oslo Accords. But in international law, Israel, the occupation of all of the West Bank and East Jerusalem is illegal. So Israel can demolish houses of families of suspected terrorists. They can demolish houses of, uh, say, Bedouin settlements that they want to confiscate for national parks or for military use. But strategically, what's happening is the settlements are expanding uh, to make sure that Palestinian cities are not in direct contact with each other. So by expanding the settlements uh, to the east of Jerusalem, that cuts off Ramallah from Bethlehem or cuts off Palestinian cities from Jericho on the border with uh, Jordan. So a lot of the house demolitions are strategic for the expansion of settlements. On the 9th of March 2023, 4PR recorded this explanation given by Ramsey Baroud from the Palestine Chronicle about how and why the West Bank is divided up by Israel. We put this question to one of Palestine's best-known journalists at the Black Palestine Solidarity Forum organised by the Institute for Collaborative Race Research and Justice for Palestine Mianjin. Um, I have a question for Ramsey. You know the status of Jerusalem in that the Palestinian Palestinians have no citizenship there but they have a residency status. Do you think this current Israeli government will impose an annexation over the whole of um, um, Palestine 
and create a situation similar to Jerusalem in giving the or not giving the Palestinians just not not allowing them citizenship and imposing um, a residency scenario similar to Jerusalem. Right. So Palestinians are kind of all living under various types of 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 rules and divisions and lines. Uh, you have the besieged Gaza Strip. Uh, the Israeli says that we have disengaged from here. The international community says, no, it's still at occupied territories. Uh, then you have the West Bank, divided to three areas, A, B, and C. And I don't, if you are getting confused, and you will get confused, that's the whole point. It's to create this confusion that, uh, you know, the, the West Bank is a separate discussion, area C is a separate discussion from Gaza, East Jerusalem is something different, and so forth. It's just the same military occupation, the same apartheid, the same racism, the same uh, 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 you know, mechanisms of control and, and, and dominance. But the Israelis kind of break it down in such a way because they want to divide the Palestinians. Because some Palestinians, for a while, thought that they are a little bit luckier than other Palestinians. So if you are a Palestinian uh, who is a native still living in Palestine, today is Israel, you have a citizenship. You don't have equal rights. You don't have equal rights. You are still a, a second, third, or fourth status citizen, but you still have a passport that gives you a little bit more freedom than a Palestinian living in the West Bank. But Palestinians in the West Bank also have Jordanian passports that makes them feel a little bit luckier than those like the unfortunate some like us in Gaza. We have nothing. I remember when I left Gaza for the first time, I had what they call the laissez passe, like an Israeli travel document just made for people in Gaza, and it says nationality undefined. So when I went to the first um, um, like border crossing past Palestine, the officer is looking at that and he says, who are you? I said, I'm a Palestinian. He says, I don't care, but your passport doesn't say anything. It has no nationality. It's meaningless, right? So all of these kind of you know, Israeli mechanisms have been aimed at Dividing Palestinians, administering them in different ways, but ultimately the ultimate objective, take more land, build more settlements, empty the land from its people as much as possible. But then something happened and it culminated to the May 2021 revolt in Palestine. A revolt that in my opinion is still ongoing and manifesting itself uh, every day in, in various Palestinian polities. And I think that's the moment the Israelis have realized that their plan has failed. The Palestinians, the so-called Israeli Arabs, these are the Palestinians who are living in the so-called Israel proper. This is Palestinian land that was colonized in 1947-48. Haven't forgotten or abandoned their identity. Uh, Palestinians in Gaza who were supposed to be isolated from the West Bank still stood in the same kind of, you remember you guys, the whole thing started with the Sheikh Jarrah, the house demolitions in East Jerusalem, the resistance in Gaza fired at Israelis in retaliation, Palestinians in Haifa and Yaffa and Nazareth rose in rebellion against the Israelis and suddenly Israel is in a state of civil war, the army is in the streets and there was a complete panic, the Israeli media described this as this is 1948 all over again. Like everything that we have done to break them, everything we have done to divide them, at least, at least we were able to attack one area at a time without the others retaliating. 
Now Palestinians are developing this new political discourse that is a lot less sectional than it's ever been. New groups that are not affiliated with any other existing political groups. Young people who are very smart, very connected, um, and developing this whole, you know, slogans and ideas that, that sees us all as one and the same. And that's where the, the risk of Israelis beginning to take action against, you know, to kind of use that passport as a leverage, to use that residency as a leverage. Now they are passing a law that passed its first reading in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, that basically says that any Palestinian uh, that, that, that carries out a terrorist attack, uh, but it's written in the weirdest possible way, not any Palestinian who carries out a terrorist attack, but someone who, has, who tries to harm the interests of the Jewish people, whatever that means, is to be executed. So they are bringing back the executions that they have stopped 60, 70 years ago. Israel is in a state of panic. Israel is in a state of panic. And the real panic here is that Palestinians, in terms of numbers, they are now equaling the Israeli Jews. Uh, in terms of political identity, they are becoming again unified. In, in terms of, of, of uh, political discourse, they have completely abandoned the entire Oslo framework. Nobody is talking about that. And even in terms of one state versus two states, majority of Palestinians in the West Bank, for the first time in history, are now demanding equal rights in one state. And that's where the panic in Israel is happening. Uh, and, and this is why the rush to change the, the, the nature of the Supreme Court and alter the judicial system, they are trying to do everything in their power to stop that collapse. And I think there's a lot of hope in all of this. I know sometimes when you, uh, we're talking about hope, you go to the news and you realize another number of Palestinians were killed, and it's like, where is this hope coming from? But if you actually look at it from, from a, a, a kind of a wider perspective, you would see that Israeli political establishment is collapsing at the scene, and it's the Palestinians, on the other hand, that are rebuilding their, their national unity and their political discourse once more. So let's go back to the interview that Ken Davis did with the ABC. Ken Davis is from Unionate Abroad, and he discusses here the social conditions in Palestine. Ken also talks about social conditions, including the effects of the current crisis on the gay movement in both Palestine and Israel, and also discusses the social and economic crisis that exists across the entire region. Now, you've been working in this part of the world for a number of years. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there, Israel politically is very has become very different. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu um, lost power, but then once again took the helm. Uh, I think it was about 18 months between that. What uh, Are the issues facing the Palestinian people changing, or has the tension between the two countries become a part of everyday life? It's obviously part of everyday life since, you know, Oslo since 93, particularly since the separation wall was erected from 2000, mid-2000s. There's probably about 150,000 or 200,000 Palestinian, mainly men, that cross the border or cross into settlements for work each day. You know, the former government wasn't pro-Palestinian, but the current government has a, an extreme right party descending from groups that are still on the consolidated terrorism list for Australia that is empowered over the police and over the occupation. 
So that's making things a lot worse. And basically the current government's told the settlers, and the settlers are about 16% of the total Jewish population of Israel, that, you know, they've got free reign, you know, having guns or being able to shoot uh, Palestinians. So there was what, you know, the Israeli press refers to as a pogrom in the village of Huara near Nablus, where dozens of houses were burned and uh, an even larger number of cars and many Palestinians were injured. So it's a green light to, uh, I don't know what you want to say, vigilante violence by the settlers. You're with Union Aid Abroad. Tell us about this. Where does it uh, get its funding? How does it decide where to direct its efforts? We get some funding from the Australian government. We've been working on projects with Palestinians since our foundation in 1984, both in the refugee camps in Lebanon and uh, after 1988 in uh, Palestine. Uh, in this case, we've got a project helping build the capacity of women's uh, co-ops, either in agriculture, you know, organic agriculture or in uh, organic food production uh, in Salfita and in a village near Ramallah. Um, and this is sponsored by the Australian Education Union. Right. And you're now in, in Jordan over the eastern border. What's happening there? Jordan's very quiet, but uh, everything's very cold and wet, you know, in right. this part of the world. How's organic you know, farming Jordan... in those conditions? Sorry? How's organic farming in those conditions? Look, the you know, in Palestine uh, and Jordan, they've got all different um, environments. You know, on the Jordan Valley, it's virtually tropical. Mm. Uh, and then, they, we, you know, from Australia, we um, were interested in dry land uh, permaculture. Yep. And then in the mountain areas um, in Palestine, you know, it's fairly rocky, so it's suitable for almonds and um, herbs and uh, olives, obviously. Um, but in home gardens or small gardens, people are using uh, permaculture techniques. I think didn't have a sense of urgency about the level of crisis, uh, human rights crisis in a lot of countries, you know, like China, Myanmar, Russia, mm. Uganda, uh, Egypt, Saudi, and so on. But it's interesting here because, you know, there's um, Israeli gay movement and uh, Palestinian gay movement. The Palestinian group Al-Khawz is, you know, a Palestinian national group. Um, and also in Jordan, the situation might have deteriorated. There's, you know, gay areas here and gay bars and gay groups and gay publications. And the Queen, I think, is a patron of uh, some of that. But uh, in general, the situation is um, becoming a bit more conservative because there's so much pressure in the region. You know, geopolitics is changing rapidly. Right. Um, Saudi, which is a key Australian ally, um, now is um, doing deals with Russia and China, maybe with Iran. Um, so this geopolitical stuff, you know, puts pressure on each of the autocratic regimes and, um, you know, that has a social impact on women, on uh, on Muslims, on uh, ethnic minorities, and on queer people. Right. So the flow-on effects of geopolitical tensions in the Middle East have direct effects on LGBTQIA plus people. Uh, absolutely, because um, you know, in Jordan, um, you know, the monarchy is uh, very important, but historically has been counterposed to you know the the kings in Saudi Arabia. There's tension. Uh, Jordan's a key Western ally, but. Um, you know, when the economy is not good, people go to the church or to the mosque. You know what I mean? You, if you don't trust the temporal powers, the secular powers, you try and put your faith in God. And so people become a bit more observant, either as Christians or Muslims. And um, that's, 
that has a conservatising effect. And, um, you know, here wages are low. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, Jordan's not rich in uh, petrol or gas. Um, the water is so far underground it's hard to access. There's a crisis in the region, the whole region. You know, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Israel, Lebanon, um, Jordan in terms of fresh water. And, um, you know, when there's not enough water, particularly in Iraq, for example, that, you know, makes the the farmers really poor. And that's a big situation for Palestinians because the separation wall puts the aquifers in the mountains on the Israeli side of the wall. Um, so the big issue for for food security, but for farmers, is uh, in the whole region is water. So that's all from me, Ian Kerr, 4PR Voice of the People. Let's go out with a song, The Ghosts of Dear Yassin, by Phil Monsour and Rafif Zidia. It's forgotten But somewhere Small flowers grow On the weathered stones Of destroyed homes Somewhere The lights still in the window You see that we are rising Our day is surely Shadows are the ghosts, dear you see. They change the names and the sounds, but it's in our hearts. These words are written, and I'm the children who don't know their homes. They will walk the streets. They are forbidden You see that we are rising Our day is surely coming No longer in the shadows Of the ghosts of dear you see سأعود بعزم ويقين أملي في يوم أن أرجع للأرض المحبوبة أرضي أتحدى لا يا مستقبل سنعود سنعود بعزم ويقين They will walk with us when we return. 